All right, we are back. Hey, hey guys, you still with us? Yep, yeah, still here. All right, good. Well, as you are no doubt witnessing, Guy, we have a lot of stuff sort of laying about that we pick up and try to string together in some sort of coherent fashion. I think it works usually. Just waiting to watch it happen. I've looked at the desk and the piles of ideas. Looking forward to how this is going to be strung together like Christmas lights. Well, we'll yeah, speaking of that, I thank you, sir, for that segue. The Slick Magazine put out on a monthly basis by the good people at the AAA Insurance Agency. I think it's, I think it's called Diversion. It has all sorts of tips and tidbits in there. And uh, oddly enough, the Christmas tree lights appear in the latest issue. It, it suggests, in this case, how it is you can save energy during the holidays. And Radio Parallax would like to join in the suggestion that you not put up Christmas lights. AAA, on the other hand, says if you haven't already done so, replace all incandescent lights with LEDs, which use 70% less electricity while shining brighter and lasting longer. Many incandescent string lights, they say, can add up to $115 to your monthly electric bill, while an LED strand will only add $20 or less. Well, here at Radio Parallax, we don't like to encourage light pollution and energy wastage. So, on both counts, we suggest you skip the lights, okay? And while we're on the subject, why do we keep decorating Christmas trees? We need to start fixing carbon, people. There's too much in the atmosphere. It needs to go into the wood, into the cellulose. When you cut down the trees and decorate them in your living room, you're reversing the process. So I say cut it out. And not only that, get off of my lawn! No, seriously, as we continue with Radio Parallax's version of the war on Christmas, we'd like to point out to you that just because LED lights are cheap doesn't mean you need to put them up everywhere. For example, when I used to drive home on Highway 680 and return to the area of Fremont, one of the great delights of the trip was rounding the bend out of Pleasanton and having the dark, pleasant little valley of Sonol before you, where, by the way, you could see splendidly because the only thing around was what was in your headlights. The powers that be in the state of California decided what they needed to do instead was put up giant LED lights everywhere in the valley. So now when you drive home, it's like you return to a strip mall. And I don't know why this isn't obvious to people, but when lights are shining down into your car, into your eyes, you don't see so well in the dark after that. So imagine how ironic it is that in the very same issue of Diversion Magazine as put out by the good people. Actually, it's, actually I'm sorry. The magazine's called Via by AAA. And in the same issue, the very same issue of Via that gives you advice on how to put cheap illumination up everywhere, it also <laughs> tells you how it is you can find dark skies where you can now observe bright stars. This is something we would like to applaud. Observing far-off galaxies at these various nine space centers located around the western states is something we would encourage all listeners of Radio Parallax to do sometime. Some nearby choices are the Chabot Space and Science Center in Oakland. Although how it is they tack that onto a dark sky location, I don't know. There's also the Sky's the Limit Observatory located in 29 Palms, California, which I think is a little more promising for a dark sky. And there's also Lowell Observatory located down in Flagstaff, Arizona. Probably we think, without secure knowledge in this, but we suspect all great locations to go and um, learn about the sky. 
since we're talking about looking up at night, we would like to uh, forward promote the fact that the planet Mars is going to make a very favorable appearance in the nighttime sky, reaching opposition on December 8th. In fact, dear listener, if you go out right now and take a look in the east, a little bit after sunset, you will see the very bright planet rising above the eastern horizon. This appearance will be a good one. It'll be 51 million miles away at its closest, which I know sounds like a lot, but just trust me on this one. That's pretty close. Nothing to compare, of course, to the 2003 opposition of Mars, where Mars passed closer to the Earth than it's going to do for the next 60,000 years. If you're listening to this show back then, and we hope you were, you noted that yours truly did take a trip down to Brazil and Argentina in an effort to take advantage of this appearance in the sky because, as it would turn out, due to the celestial geometry, Mars was quite low and much more readily visible in the southern hemisphere. All I'll say about that at this time was that I learned that they don't do very good astronomy in Rio de Janeiro. Why is that? Well, guy, oddly enough, it was in part due to light pollution. The other part I, I, I can't really explain. It was due to the lackadaisical uh, attitude, I think, of Brazilian astronomy club members who thought that whipping out the telescope and taking a look at Mars when it was like 20 degrees above the horizon was a night's work. Time to put the telescope away and go home. And, of course, optimal viewing is at more like midnight. Anyway, I hope you will take advantage of this. I will. Good. And while you're at it, you might want to pick up on what was written in New Scientist, our favorite science magazine, although we do subscribe to both it and astronomy. To note, up in the sky near the planet Mars, you will find the Hyades. Now, maybe you weren't looking for the Hyades, but we think you should make an effort in this regard. For it is, in fact, the closest star cluster to Earth. It's only 150 light years away, right in the neighborhood. You'll know it when you see it, because if you look to the right of Mars, you'll see another red bright star up there, which will be Aldebaran, the Eye of the Bull. Aldebaran is not actually in the Hyades star cluster, but it's, it looks that way. And that cluster has a very distinctive V-shape appearance to it. And another way to find it is that little cluster of seven stars that looks like a little dipper nearby that, we, that many people know as the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades. Or if you live in Japan... Subaru. Please don't mix them up. The Pleiades is 440 light years away, whereas the Hyades is only 150. And speaking of things astronomic, we are looking forward to bringing Matt Kaplan back on the program in the near future. He is retiring after a 20-year stint running Planetary Radio for the Planetary Society. We've had, on, we've had Matt on several times, and he's always been a great guest, as have many of the other people that have joined us from that fine organization. We're particularly keen to talk to Matt and others about the DART mission that managed to whack an asteroid and knock it slightly out of its orbit with another asteroid, which might have some application if something tries to smack the Earth in the next few decades. Because we know for certain from this point forward, Bruce Willis is not going to be available. Now we're trying to keep it light on today's program, being it is sort of a holiday week. So we don't want to get into politics, except maybe a little. I couldn't resist looking at my copy of the Mercury News, the early weekend edition from, well, it was several weeks back. This was pre-election, and the headline said, Election 2022, Candidates Want to Fix Housing and Traffic. 
my thought then and now was, why stop there? You can tackle old age, poverty, and death. I know that's being very cynical about our politicians, but I'm sorry, it just sort of comes with the territory. To quote the immortal Nikita Khrushchev, which we've done several times in this program and about to do again, the former Soviet premier once noted that politicians are the same everywhere. They promise to build a bridge even when there is no river. And moving from a Leninist into a Marxist, in this case, actually, Karl Marx himself, a guy we, we don't quote a lot on this program. In the wake of the election, I, I cannot resist a chuckle. And the Marx quote that goes, the oppressed are allowed once every few years to decide which particular representatives of the oppressing class are to represent them and repress them. And although we are tempted in this program to quote from our favorite Marx, Groucho, instead, we're going to take three quotes from Thomas Marshall. Thomas Marshall, you students of history may recall, was the vice president to Woodrow Wilson. I stumbled upon these quotes in a book titled Oval Office Oddities by Bill Fawcett. It is subtitled An Irreverent Collection of Presidential Facts, Follies, and Foibles. But wouldn't you know it, my favorite chapter has to do with the vice presidents. Now, believe it or not, dear listener, you actually do know one of the quotes from Thomas Marshall, which I'm going to cite. This book notes that throughout most of U.S. history, the vice president was not encouraged to make policy statements. And it is noted that perhaps the most memorable non-statement by a vice president came when Wilson's vice president, Marshall, was asked what he felt the nation needed. Marshall went with a non-political and safe answer, which was, what this nation needs is a good five-cent cigar. Topping that, I think, was something that Marshall once said, I presume, to a group of reporters, which was that once there were two brothers, one ran away to sea, and the other was elected vice president of the United States, and nothing was heard of either of them again. Marshall left the office of the vice presidency in 1920 with the election of Warren G. Harding. When Harding's running mate, Calvin Coolidge, was elected vice president in 1920, he received a telegram, wouldn't you know it, from Thomas Marshall. The telegram read simply, please accept my sincere sympathies. You may be aware, dear listener, of the famous statement made by Franklin Roosevelt's second vice president, Cactus Jack Garner. Garner described the vice presidency of the United States as not being worth a pitcher of warm urine although we must confess he did use the P word. And it's a matter of historical record that the famous speaker and political leader Daniel Webster, when asked to become a candidate for and likely become the next vice president, turned it down with the reply, I do not intend to be buried until I am really dead. Now, one of our more famous recent vice presidents was Richard M. Nixon, who served eight years as the vice president under Dwight Eisenhower. Nixon had made quite a name for himself irritating Harry Truman in the Truman administration. When uh, Truman was asked about Nixon, not long after he left the presidency, he responded by noting that Richard Nixon was a no-good lying bastard. We at Radio Parallax do not consider that accurate. He did some good. Actually, if you think about it, he did quite a bit of good. The EPA, Strategic Arms Limitations Treaties. Now, the lying bastard part? (laughs) Yeah, that one may largely stand up. His president, Ike, Dwight Eisenhower, was never really comfortable with Nixon. This book notes that um, 
He was once asked if he could identify a reporter, any national policies to which Vice President Nixon had contributed. Ike's answer was, if you give me a week, I might think of one. Anyway, this book has a lot of little oddities in it about the presidents and vice presidents. I I think we'll keep it around for future use. One little presidential fact that leapt out at me was the fact that I'd forgotten this. In 1820, James Monroe ran for president unopposed. (laughs) He was running for re-election and nobody opposed him. Sounds like Nicaragua. But uh, I think we'll close with this little presidential anecdote, and I have a great coffee cup that commemorates this. The, the most famous photo that you can find at the Nixon Presidential Library down in Whittier, California, is that of Nixon and Elvis, arm in arm, smiling broadly. The backstory, which we could probably spend 10 minutes on to do it properly, but we're not going to do that. The backstory is that Elvis collected badges. When he wanted to get a badge for the... DEA, I guess, or narcotics agents, someone told him in his home state that the only way to get one of those was from President Nixon himself. This prompted Elvis to take one of the only three known commercial flights that he ever did take in his career. He flew to Washington, went to the White House, and asked to see the president. A rather astonished Bob Haldeman presidential staff let him in. The book notes that the ironies in this whole affair are probably too many to list, But they said you could start with the fact that Elvis was asking for a badge from the people who arrest drug users. But by far my favorite piece of the story is the fact that Elvis showed up, got admitted, I think, somewhere to the Oval Office and presented President Nixon with the gift he'd brought, a gold-plated 45 caliber handgun. We can only hope that someone in the Secret Service got an ass chewing over that one. You know, many years ago we did a little... I think a whole segment, actually, on Joan Quigley, the White House astrologer under Nancy Reagan. But I think it is fair to say that it is now a medical historical record that White House schedules, event times, and even the time at which Air Force One could take off and land were, in fact, being dictated by an astrologer. All right. And while while searching on the Internet recently, I stumbled upon an item out of the NPR news feed. I gather it was from the Planet Money segment, which frequently airs on NPR that a promising new material has been developed in the laboratory that heretofore has only been known in meteorites. Seemed pretty weird, so I thought I'd better take a closer look. And here's the story. NPR spoke to a Laura Henderson Lewis, one of the professors at Northeastern University. She told them the material found in meteorites, sometimes anyway, is a combination of the two base metals which make up the iron-nickel meteorites, i.e. iron and nickel. Supposedly, the process that created these meteorites, which is, for my money, still rather mysterious, created a unique compound with a peculiar set of characteristics that could make it, could make it ideal for use in high-energy permanent magnets. These, of course, are an essential component for a vast range of advanced machines, from electric vehicles to space shuttle turbines. The compound, which frankly I had never heard of, is called tetrataeonite. And you can bet I'm going to look this up and find out more about it for future discussion. But anyway, this this iron-nickel combination found in meteorites could, I guess that's always the key word, could make green energy technology significantly cheaper. Right now, if you have something that uses high-end permanent magnets, uh, you're pretty much using rare earth metals. The market for rare earth metals is currently dominated by China. And in the backstory around this, I found some things of interest. 
The permanent magnets you can find in advanced machinery have to resist tremendous pressures and temperatures and do so for long periods of time. Now the rare earth metals that go into these turns out are not that rare. They're found all over the world. They're rarer than a lot of things that we think of as common. But the difficult part is extracting them. You gotta dig them out of the ground. You have to separate them out because they're usually combined with other elements. And then you gotta break those compounds down and refine them. And it's all a very expensive and messy business. The United States used to be a leader in the rare earth world, but wouldn't you know it, in the 1980s, China found a huge deposit of these elements within its borders. The story is that a, a few Chinese companies opened mines in Inner Mongolia, and they were iron ore mines. And they were producing waste material that ended up in their tailings piles. The Japanese were buying large quantities of this iron, and they said, do you mind if we sample the waste piles? The Chinese said, sure, take all you want. The Japanese came back a little while later and said, we'd like to buy the waste. <laughs> the Chinese said, well, why wouldn't he sell it to you? I mean, it's waste. What are we going to do with it? Turns out the waste was rich in rare earths. The Chinese caught on to this pretty quickly and began extracting these rare elements themselves. They, of course, could do it a lot more cheaply than anyone else because of their labor costs being so low. And China was willing to put up with the huge environmental costs, which were not insignificant. Pretty soon after that, U.S. production ceased and China effectively took over the market. Today, China controls more than 71% of the world's extraction and 87% of the world's processing capacity of rare earth elements. Here's the part I like about this story. Two of these rare earths, neodymium and praseodymium, are key components in the manufacturing of permanent magnets, which means that China now dominates the permanent magnet market too, making more than 80% of these high-end instruments. A decade ago, this didn't seem to be a problem notes the article. China was a willing and cooperative trading partner, apparently so unthreatening, <laughs> I love this, that in 2004, the U.S. actually outsourced the production of magnets used in the guidance systems for American cruise missiles and precision bombs to a Chinese company. Isn't that under Reagan? I'm, sure, I'm not sure on the timing on this, Mr. McMillan and Guy, but wasn't it about this time that... Uh, a U.S. aircraft straight into Chinese territory, got forced down, and then was dismantled and sent back in pieces. <laughs> the Chinese examined every bit of it. I, I think that's right, isn't it? I believe that's so towards the beginning of the uh, Bush administration. There was so much equipment being sold to China that they were reverse engineering it. I think so. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong with having your guidance system magnets for cruise missiles be outsourced to China? Can't think of a thing. You know, they're, they're just that greedy and stupid. Anyway, some people have woke up, woken up apparently to the possible problems inherent in this, and they're going to try and open up some, uh, some rare earth mines in California and new mining sites in Arizona, Nevada, and Wyoming. This, the punchline of this story goes, is why the discovery of synthetic tetrataeonite is exciting because the compound is tough and manufacturers could, again, that word could, make permanent magnets out of it. Go. Well, I think we can wish them well in that endeavor. Well, we've got only four or five minutes left, and there's two obituaries that I want to do. One is for Jerry Lee Lewis, and one isn't. And doggone it, I'm going to go with the one that isn't. Some wag once said that the news consists of informing the public that Lord Jones is dead, when the public didn't even know that Lord Jones was alive. Sadly, that is appropriate for the passing of Herman 
Daly, D-A-L-Y, age 84, who challenged the economic gospel of growth. I, I did not know this man existed, and I'm, I'm sorry to report that. But we can partly make up for that by quoting from what was said in his obituary in the New York Times. Dr. Daly was an ecological economist, a phrase I'm sure you've never heard. I hadn't. He was almost surely his field's chief popularizer through more than a dozen books and many journal articles. He had faculty positions at the University of Maryland and earlier at Louisiana State University and a somewhat incongruous six-year stint at the World Bank. Although he was branded as a heretic for his theories, or worse, simply ignored, he had plenty of adherents who saw him as a prophet for anticipating climate change's increasingly harmful impact and the vast sums of money needed to address it. One of his key principles was that growth is uneconomic when its costs outweigh its benefits. Daly said in a 2011 video, it's really not hard to understand. I can explain that to my grandchildren. Another foundational concept of Daly was that the economy does not exist apart from the Earth's biosphere, but in fact within it, and that its scale is limited by its reliance on finite natural resources. We in this program say, duh, to that. But then again, we're not economists. We refer back to that quote from Sir David Attenborough from several weeks back, wherein he noted that anyone who believes in infinite growth is either insane or an economist. I think we owe this man a more lengthy discussion in the future. Over the past many years, I've heard many, many people discuss how stupid it is that we rely upon a concept of gross domestic product to evaluate the well-being of a nation. Everyone seems to agree that's a really stupid way to make that assessment, and no one seems to have found an alternative. Of course, in saying that, I reveal my ignorance about Herman Daly and others who apparently have spent some time figuring out a better way and have written about it. I'm just ignorant about what they wrote. I'm going to fix that. All right, doggone it, that, that about does it for time. This program was produced by Edward Gamillan. I want to say a special thanks to uh, Gordon Smith for his always enlightening look at foreign languages and to our special guest today, Guy Tortorisi. Thank you. It was fun. Pizza was good. Well, Guy, now that you've seen how the magic unfolds on Radio Parallax, we hope you will not reveal the secret unless under subpoena. Even then, I, I think I will evoke my Fifth Amendment. Good plan. We will too. All right, we need some outro music, so we're going to turn it over to you, Guy. It's all yours. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. Well, maybe the count's the same. How would I know? Living the dream. Yes, I'm living the dream. If that's what we're gonna call it. That's what we're gonna call it